Welcome to the Humans of Payroll podcast. My name is Melanie Pitsy. I am the CEO of the Global Payroll Association. During this series, I wanted to introduce you to some of the talented, driven and hardworking individuals I have met within the payroll industry. And what better way than the Humans of Payroll podcast? Hi, welcome to this episode of Humans of Payroll. And we have Richard Limkin uh, today. So I'm really excited to have you join us. So Richard, tell the audience all about you and who you are and and where you work. Hey, Mel, thanks ever so much for having me on. Um, All about me, I guess. uh, My role at the moment is Chief Product Officer in Amidas. Um, That's kind of 25 years into my career at this stage. Um, So I have a huge amount of fun in the global payroll space, figuring out really complicated stuff and that's kind of what I like doing. I like figuring out stuff that hasn't been done before. Um, so a lot of my kind of career path to get here has been stages of that in different areas and different aspects. And it's all kind of led into this. But uh, I guess a little bit about me personally, I, I live I live in Ireland. I live in a place called Kilkenny in Ireland, which is a, a really small town. I think that I could have the numbers wrong, but I think there's about 90,000 people in the entire town and county. So it's a very rural place. It's a beautiful place to live. Like the sun is beaming in today. It wasn't yesterday, but uh, yes, that's kind of that's a bit about me right now. Oh well, you're lucky because we've got your rain, I think. So um. <laughs> yeah, that's usually the way. You usually get it like a day and a half after us. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. So I've got the lights on because it's so dark. So, um, so how did you actually get into payroll then? So have you have you been into payroll for twenty five years, and how how did that happen? Yeah, not not entirely. So I guess I kind of had a weird path towards it. I, I, I guess I've said this so many times, but it, it feels true every time I have this conversation with someone around how they got into payroll. I'm not. I've, I've met very few people that planned that. Like mm-hmm. they left school and said, "Right, I'm going to go get myself into payroll." Um, but when you do end up there, like you can't imagine being somewhere else. It's 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 a really fun place to be, and I think there's never been a more exciting time in HR and payroll technology than right now. So, like my background was in um, educated in the UK. Um, UK system is is can be quite limiting if you make the wrong choices. So, like at the age of like fourteen or fifteen, I just picked the stuff I was good at and didn't think about the longer term. So, I picked maths more maths, chemistry, and physics. Wow. So I had no languages, I had no business, I had no useful stuff that could broaden me somewhere else. Two or three years later, you're looking at college and what you'd actually like to do. And okay, so I can't do medicine, I can't do law, I can't do all these things that would actually be a career. So I went and studied physics, uh, theoretical physics for four years. Um, and I very quickly realized that's not what I wanted to do. I could, I could do it, but I definitely, I didn't want to teach. I didn't want to lecture. I wasn't sure I wanted to go into research and physics. So I was trying to figure out where to go from there. I was really lucky in my last year, though, I got a programming master's. So I was able to actually spend the year writing code and it was actually simulating Formula One cars. Wow. Um, how that ended up being in the physics department, I don't know. I think one <laughs> of the lecturers love cars. Um, but that that was my kind of transition out of physics um, into computer science almost. And from there, I got into management consulting, um, the like late, late 90s, I guess, when I went into London into Deloitte Consulting. And at, at that stage, at that career point, you get exposed to so many things and you get such a breadth of experience really quickly. And so it was a it was a really lucky transition. But one of the first things I ended up doing was working on a HR transformation project. And it was before 
people had business intelligence layers written, pre-boxed, all that kind of stuff. So I was actually writing SQL views to pull HR data together with finance data and all that kind of thing. And it was that intersection of HR and other stuff I really started to enjoy. And I had a few kind of weird transitions from there where I went away from payroll for a few years, but it always kind of drew me back. There was always an aspect of it in everything I did. And so it's like the really technical side of payroll that you love. It is. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I think the if you can solve the technical stuff, but be really aware of the impact that has, I think that's really important. So you can you can have a really clean, beautiful technical solution, but if it's not solving the business problem or the people aspect or something, it just won't be used. So you've, you've got to bring all of those pieces together. So I kind of feel like I've lived most of my career in payroll has actually been in the intersection of HR, payroll, workforce management, the, the messy bit in the middle that can either work really well and be a, a powerful enabler, or it can be an absolute car wreck if it goes wrong. Yeah, I can imagine it's really satisfying when it goes right. I can imagine yeah. that's really satisfying. Oh, massively. There's no like, there's no better feeling than getting something transformed or transitioned into a production environment and things go well. Um, and like knowing the stages and the the stuff you've had to overcome along the way and bringing people on that journey, but like big big enterprise stuff, especially. There's so many different stakeholders and personas involved in that kind of stuff that you've, you've got to be really careful about it and you've got to make sure the communication is right, that everyone is boarding along the way. And again, like you can get to the point of go live and be ready technically, but if nobody's willing to pick up what you're deploying, then it's just not going to work. Yeah, we, we um, used to, before Graham Jenkins retired, we used to work closely with him and he was an independent consultant and he used to work on a lot of big projects trying to, you know, get payrolls um, implemented. Um, and I think one of the key issues that he found was when um, people uh, didn't have the stakeholders involved, um, yeah. they um, they just didn't have the right people on board. And they were just saying, you need to get your house in order because it doesn't matter what you've got. But if you haven't got your house in order before you start these projects, then it's potentially going to fail. Yeah, definitely. And I guess I, I've been really lucky in my career. I've, I've always had phenomenal mentors along the way. And like I think what I was asked the other day, like, what's my lesson? It would be to never think you know it all. You can always learn. And I think even more recently, but just prior to moving to Amelia, so I took on a, a big transformation project separating a bank and um, it was it was a tough project. But actually, the best mentor I've had in my career so far was my opposite person, the, the, the person who bought our services in, in the bank and I had to deliver into tough individual a very tough individual to make sure he got everything done. But what I learned from him, he could write a book on managing stakeholders and how to make sure the right people are engaged in the right ways and how to make sure something is actually ready to go, not just technically, but politically and even emotionally within the organization. So really, you can always learn from people who have vast quantities of experience in certain things. Yeah. And actually, the emotional side is really important, isn't it? Because um, my background um, is recruitment. I remember people contacting us because there is a change. And the first thing that um, team team members were looking at was, do I need to get another job? Rather than thinking, OK, this is an experience to work through and to make people feel confident that actually they will have a job at the end of it. Or, you know, there might be a change. Managing that emotional part, I think, is really important. Yeah, and I think a big part of payroll is is trust. Like you, you, you don't get many opportunities to to get it right. You have to have it right. If it mm-hmm. goes wrong, then trust is very quickly breached. And particularly at an employee level, if an employer can't get the pay right, then 
it only happens once or twice and then no longer an employee. So you've got to manage that really carefully. And I think that's what, for me, in that previous relationship I just talked about, that that's what came out of that. It was, it was a really aggressive project, but there, were tr- there was trust on both sides and there was trust in the wider community of the, of the business, in, in the guy leading the project and how it would be done. So, yeah, it was choppy. And to get something done with an immovable deadline, it's, it's never that easy. But if you trust in the people there to do it and you trust in the outcome you need, then that's a really important part. But you've got to get the trust into every employee. Yeah. yeah. And because I think there's um, reports that if you get the payroll wrong twice, people start looking for a job. I was actually talking about it last night and um, uh, the person I was talking to, their son started looking for another job as soon as he was paid wrong twice. So so I've actually got first experience of, of that actually happening. So you mentioned the guy that um, ran the project. Was he? Would you say he was like a mentor or just somebody that you learned a lot from? Yeah, I, th- I think a bit of both. Like he, he was a, a really tough customer, um, incredible professional. Became a became a, a very close friend through through a kind of mutual shared experience of having to get stuff done. Um, but definitely, definitely, I learned an awful lot from that in terms of um, being managed as a supplier. Um, and how to do it really well and that for me is something I've now tried to bring forwards into when I'm dealing with suppliers into our organization a kind of respectful way of doing it and there's got to be equity in things you can't you can't batter a supplier and expect them to want to deliver for you and you can't cut it to the bone and mean that actually there's going to be a good outcome because they're going to have to cut every corner they can to get there and having an emotional awareness to know that there's a way of managing that because mm. I think I feel like that's maybe was that like the 90s 2000 way of dealing with partners wasn't it to so be oh, really stern and, and maybe now it's more about working as partners rather than that client relationship actually everything should be a partnership to get things delivered definitely definitely like I, I built a partner organization in a in a previous um career stage and like you've got like do you really mean partnership like, is it just a customer supplier relationship or is it actually a partnership? And if it's actually a partnership, it's kind of two plus two equals five or six or seven, if you get yeah. it right, as opposed yeah. to just getting to four. So it, it can be really powerful. It can be hugely enabling. You've got to have a bit of transition of culture across a partnership as well. You've got to actually understand the organics of how a business works and how individuals in that business, what motivates them, what do they believe in? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you get to that point, then it really is a partnership. Yeah, that's great. And also your background is totally different to anybody I've spoken to that's sort of fallen into payroll. Um, you know, we've spoken to some people that have been engineers and it's it, it's really fascinating actually to hear what, you know, people's backgrounds and all, all of a sudden, you know, they could be scientists or, you know, you could have been a teacher, but you chose the payroll profession. How do you think we get payroll people or yeah, people into the payroll industry? Have you got thoughts on that? Yeah, you see lots of different kind of entry points into it. But I, I think it's and it's kind of what I was saying earlier that I think it's it's as exciting as it's ever been in payroll right now. I think there's so much change in terms of the technology that's coming into payroll because payroll realistically over, over the last probably two decades has been really underinvested. So there's been a huge wave of investment in HCM technology. That's great. And where that's covered domestic payroll, maybe there's been a bit of investment there. Um, but it's always the, the kind of classic payroll behavior. It's the risk aversion. If, it, if it's not broken, just do not touch it. And you know that's great this month and next month. But what about in a year's time when it goes out of support or five years time when you've got a green screen still? And yes, it's calculating payslips correctly and employees are 
are happy, but the mountain is really high now and you've got to climb it. So like there's, there's a huge transition in what's happening in payroll technology. So it, it's, it's become a much more technically led profession and it's really transitioning there quickly. So there's so much opportunity for people to change skill sets, to become much more data led, mm-hmm. to get access and, and even cross jurisdictional stuff. You don't need to still only operate in one country. You actually have the opportunity now as a payroll professional to own multiple jurisdictions, own a region, start to understand payrolls, cover for people in other regions. And I think that's hugely exciting. There's, there's opportunity in every regard, both for people in payroll, but for a new generation of people coming into the payroll um, career path as well. Yeah, and it's just t- even touching payroll. So even when you speak to people who are marketeers and they, you know, they didn't choose to work in pay- the payroll industry, but they stay in the payroll industry. So there's yeah. there's so many different professions, aren't there, that actually touch payroll. And as soon as people get into payroll, they just seem to to stay. And I, I, I remember 20 years ago when I was recruiting payroll people and I would say that the skill set um, that was required was a lot less than what it is now um you know you can see over the last 20 Definitely. years just how much the payroll industry has grown and also the people that are working in the industry yeah, and definitely like working in global payroll, I, I still find it fascinating. Even after so many years, you still see things that surprise you. Yeah. And like you can see certain jurisdictions have evolved much more quickly in, in the concepts and the profession around HR and payroll and how they interact and that kind of classic fence of what's HR and what's pay, payroll and the blurred lines that are now yeah. there, which is I think is a really good thing. But there are still countries where, like there are, there are countries we operate payrolls in where the word payroll doesn't exist. It's not right. in the language because it's actually just a function that an accountant does. Yeah. So it hasn't evolved to the, the level of evolution we have, certainly in, in, in Western Europe and the Americas around how payroll is considered and the incredibly powerful enabling thing it can be in an organization. It's gone from being, like in my, in my 20 plus years in payroll, I've seen it almost purely owned by finance it's a sub-function of finance to something that i would say in more than 60 percent of cases now is a hr function yeah it's so much more important in the way people are managed in terms of people's emotional attachment to their employer and all those type of aspects so it's it's completely evolved in that short space of time and payroll has real-time data as well doesn't it so it does hold data that is really important for an organization to run yeah, absolutely. And, and it's even in that sense, it's, it's evolved from um, people having to ask for information from payroll to supplement information from elsewhere and blend to try and get to an answer, even to calculate like, simple UK-based stuff around gender pay equity and those types of things. It would have been a collaboration between HR and payroll and potentially finance to help push the data together. That's stuff now that can typically be done in one place. And you expect that to be just a natural outcome of having the right information and having access to it. But also, like to your question earlier, having people with the skill sets to blend that information, they're not just running a gross net register. They're actually able to provide real, real actionable insight into a business. And so another question or another conversation I was having um, this week, and we have had, actually, I've spoken to two people, you know, randomly have these random conversations. Oh, I'm such a payroll geek, aren't I? <laughs> so, You're not alone, like, don't worry. <laughs> all I want to talk about is payroll. But anyway, um, so I had um, two discussions with two individual people that weren't related. And the discussion was around, can we make payroll, the payroll department its own department? So can you have finance, HR and payroll as a standalone. What mm. what do you think of that? What's your thoughts? 
I definitely think in terms of uh, some of the skill sets that there are, there are skill sets in payroll that are not accounting skill sets. Like I, I, I am an accountant, I qualified as an accountant, but, and I use bits of that, but there, there are an awful lot of other things that a payroll professional has to have and, and they have to be super aware of HR policy, for example. They've got to understand the mechanics of workforce management and time and how that feeds the payroll process. But like, what's the impact on EU working time directive, those types of things. There's so many aspects in in payroll that they have to be aware of Um, and they have to be aware of it because they have to make sure they're compliant with it so it's it's a really broad profession and I I, I often see professionals in payroll guiding other departments and you know I I know you want to do this and I understand why you're trying to do this but there are only certain ways it can actually legally be done Um, so I I absolutely think there's a there's a place for that I think it's a really important place yeah, maybe that's another campaign we can work on. Um, yeah. So we're talking about technology. So we're, well, we're going to talk about something that's quite an emotional subject. So we we ran a, a webinar on this a few years back. And, I, you know, personally, I, I didn't feel like enough people had registered to, to watch it. And I think um, since we uh, run this webinar, the, the topic has really sort of come to, to its own or exploded. And that's on on-demand pay or early wage access. So uh, for those of you that were listening that were at our, uh, that was at our summit a couple of weeks ago, it was um, an emotional topic. No- normally it's a slump, isn't there, after lunch with the next... Um, it's it's normally that graveyard shift after people have eaten <laughs> digesting. But um, we had a panel discussion on early wage access and uh, it definitely woke everyone up. Do you want to explain what early wage, early wage access is or on-demand pays for those that aren't aware of it? Yeah, absolutely. So really, it's the concept of being able to draw down ahead of pay date. Um, Typically in payroll, you're in this kind of classic cycle where you run a process, whether it's a weekly process or a monthly process, any duration, quarterly even, you have to get to the end of the process. And there's a specified date on which everyone knows they're getting paid. And and it's the one date in everyone's life, you can pretty much guarantee they know the answer. When do you get paid? Is it the 25th of the month? Is it last working day of the month? Everyone knows when it is. But it's just that one event. What what earned wage access or early wage access or on-demand pay, different languages for the same thing. It's really allowing people to get access to funds that technically they have earned. So if you want potentially to get some of your salary on a monthly payroll, let's say by the 10th of the month, you've worked those 10 days. It's not that you're not going to do them. So employers are able to provide, from a technology point of view, the ability for you to just literally on demand request that through self-service and say, I want to draw down. Typically, it's up to a limit. you, You can't draw down up to the 20th of the month on the 10th of the month because you haven't earned it yet. Um, and that would be a loan, that would be forwarding cash, and there's all sorts of constraints around that. So all it's really allowing you to do is, is draw down early something that you've already entitlement to. And it could be for hours you've worked, or it could be days you worked if you're salaried, both the same concept. Mm-hmm. So it's really the, 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 the idea behind it and the original drive around it was very much around um, helping people who were in financial difficulty or had an unplanned um, expense. It could be the, the classic example that's always given. I don't know how common it is, is the car breaks down, so I can't get to work to earn yeah. money. I need to fix the car. Um, so there's all those kind of pieces around it. Um, from, a, from a kind of legislative point of view, it's, it's pretty sound. It is, you know, you're only paying somebody for something they've done. So it's what payroll is there to do anyway. Um, so that's the kind of basic construct of earned wage, earned wage access. So it has been quite an emotional subject, as I said. So, yeah, but 
you've got the two sides. So um, we've had people say, why, you know, um, why should we help people get, get into debt? Um, surely this could um, help people who have got addictive personalities get further into debt. And then you've got the other side saying, why why is it um, down to the payroll industry or us um, to decide whether or not uh, people can't access their wages early? So, you know, why should we stop them? Why, you know, we should allow people to draw down on their salaries whenever they whenever they want to so you've got sort of like two sides of of the camp and I just think you know um what what's your what's your thoughts on on it yeah it's hard because you're a provider as well so absolutely yeah and, and like we, we we do see demand for it so yeah. you know, that, that's the as, as a supplier you, you you supply into a commercial environment and if there's demand for something then providing it's the appropriate thing to do, yeah. you you do it. Um, I suppose I, I look at these things and maybe it's having had the science background, I think of these things as a series of experiments. And they, if you go into an experiment expecting success every time, then you'll soon be disappointed and decide science isn't for you. So it's it's kind of, these things are very early. It's an early concept. It's roughly five years, the concept's been around. Um, there's very, there's very small amount of access to it, and and it's predominantly um, North America that has driven this originally. And um, so that I I don't believe there's enough data to really know at this stage whether it's actually something that's going to fulfil what it was originally there for to to help vulnerable financially vulnerable individuals. Um, it, it is very correlated with almost everything we do now is becoming on demand. It's not yeah. just pay. If you think of any service you subscribe to or consume, we don't buy physical DVDs anymore. We subscribe to streaming services, every fundamental piece of life, pretty much. There's very few things, even cards. You, you take out a loan plan, a PCP, whatever it is, people aren't buying physical assets as much anymore. Mm-hmm. So it is moving towards that. And, and I, I would believe if, if you ask me in 100 years' time, then I suspect people will be immediately paid transactionally for what they do, yeah. which is no different to like doing day rate project based work. That's yeah. that's what happens there. Do I think it's a good thing? Is probably a different part to it, and that's the very kind of divisive emotional side of it. I understand the mechanics of it, and I understand the alternative can be very aggressive payday loans. You could be talking about thousands of percentage points um, on an annualized basis. But is it like if you want to if you want something to get somebody to get better from an injury, sometimes you have to rip the pandaid off. Mm. Um, if you keep putting sticking plasters over what is actually a gaping wound, then it's not going to heal. And what's the underlying problem? The underlying problem is the financial crisis and the wage issues. And are we paying minimum wage or are we paying living wage? Can we actually fix the underlying problem? And giving people, in my, in my opinion anyway, giving people earlier access to something in that way when they're already financially vulnerable, maybe they haven't had the financial education, maybe that you know that we were very privileged to get, um, it's bringing them closer to a cliff edge. Yeah. So will we provide it? Well, if it's required, of course, but I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. I would want from a personal opinion to educate my kids so that they understand the importance of managing your finances. And it doesn't mean you have to be wealthy to do that. It just means you have to live within your means and you have to be able to manage that. I do think it's going to happen. You know, something yeah, absolutely it's going to change. But I just think when I was in my twenties and early thirties, you know, I was really irresponsible with money. And I think, in, especially in my mid twenties, I'd go out in London and I might miss my train home. And then I'd think, so this is my scenario. I think, oh, I just draw down 60, 70 quid because I need to get a taxi home. Or I'd be like, oh, I can stay for you know another drink. 
and I'll miss my train. And if you did that on a regular basis, then obviously you're going to be in debt. And, and I just, yeah. you know, for me personally, I think that it would have been a nightmare for me, um, you know, for a while. I think I would have learned after my first two, but you, you're still constantly in debt. And I think that the problem is as well. So if you're constantly in, in debt with your employer, does that mean that you're going to struggle to leave your em, employer? Or if you go on holiday, could you be in further debt? So that the little yeah, thing. That I think yeah. I think, I think that's a really, really about. important question. That I think that that piece, so, so the concept around earned wage access um, or early wage access, I, I, I actually prefer the term earned wage because it, it's a great question. You can't actually get in debt to your employer because you can only draw down what you've earned so far. Right. So, you know, if you if you draw it down and then don't turn up tomorrow, they probably still owe you some money because you can only draw down typically 60 or 70 percent of what you've earned. And right. um, so it, it, it doesn't mean you can be in debt, but you can actually from a from a construct point of view, you can be burdened with staying with an employer because it, your choice is then if you need that on an ongoing basis, you can only move to another employer that provides the same facility. Right. If you move to somebody who's paying at the end of the month you can't make ends meet. So no. there are other ways that you end up encumbered. So it is it is kind of, um, it's an evolving thing. And I, I do absolutely agree. I think we will see more and more of it. And I do think pay will move to daily pay ultimately. Um, I think from a technology point of view, we're a long way from that. In, in you know, When you look across the 150 plus countries we're operating in, there's only, in my opinion, probably 10 of them that are, set up with technology to do it and the governmental returns that would facilitate it so there's a long long way to go in that regard but i, I do think like, i think the financial education side of it as an employer i think that's something much more powerful that you can provide not everybody does business studies at school not everybody has access to that level of education so if you can provide that kind of support it's really powerful yeah there's um there's a credit card for children um mm. or you know cash card for children um i don't know if it's based um in ireland as well but it's basically it yeah. like, and um i've looked at the resources and they're really really good like yeah. for, to explain to children and actually i must really learned a few things myself as an adult um and i and i think you know that's the sort of things that we should be learning at school i when i was at school we had hsbc in and i uh, run the I didn't personally run it but I was one of the clerks to run the bank the school bank so I, I, had to, I can't believe I did it because I'm not the best at maths but anyway um so I think it was on a Friday once every Friday everyone could pay in their money or yeah. if, you know so it was like a proper little HSBC branch and that was that was a really good learning curve I really like the entrepreneurial type of thing you know of what, being 14 and in charge of this money um but we didn't have practical skills like you know who who knew how to read a payslip you know we, you don't have those skills do you at school you're not taught those skills you're not taught about but actually you're not talk about you're not taught about banks or finance or no. anything so no none of that stuff yeah. No, it's mad, and it, like actually, you say HSBC, man, it makes me laugh because my, my as a child, I was with a bank that HSBC bought, and my my um, my IBAN still has the original name of that Midland Bank still is in the IBAN, so like yeah. I, I HSBC my entire life. But um, so so I, so they did a good job there because I'm still HSBC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they make it very easy, but um, <laughs> frictionless frictionless banking, but uh, not a plug for HSBC. No, I, I do think the like the the child aspect is a really interesting one like i always think about the management theory stuff you i'm sure everybody's heard about the the harvard experiment with marshmallows like and you, there's even kids programs now that teach this you, you put a marshmallow in front of a child 
and you say, I'm going to leave the room and come back in five minutes. And if the marshmallow is still there, I'm going to give you another one. And it'll double up each time or they'll add one each time. And the number of kids, it's a delayed gratification experiment. So the number of kids that will actually sit it out beyond the first marshmallow is relatively small. Mm. But like you're really talking about the same concepts. And, and when you get into the consumerization of everything and subscription model and on demand, it's the flip opposite. People don't have the attention span and the patience to see something through to a bigger outcome. Mm. So they're expecting immediate gratification. And I, I think that could be a potentially dangerous thing. I worry for like not the current generation entering the workforce, um, but certainly when my kids get in, like their eldest is 11, when they get into the workforce, where will they be mentally in terms of their expectation and their willingness to think longer term? Yeah, and that that's so true, actually, because, we, you know, you hear you hear stories of, maybe the younger generation getting into work and their expectations are slightly different to maybe what our expectations are um and you know when we when we started out you know we had to wait for things didn't we basically you know like we didn't have emails um you wait for christmas or you don't get it that's, that's the way it worked in our house <laughs> yeah and and maybe maybe things will change in the next two generations, but it is definitely going to be a bit harder, isn't it? Because you've still got the old the old people like us, maybe um, expecting a certain way, and then the younger generation coming in expecting it to be like that now. Yeah, totally. And you've got then to exacerbate that you've got the mixture of all of that in in a single workforce, you know, in, in one organization to be able to manage that and, and to be able to manage with all the different aspects that motivate people and make people gel together. And like your, your question earlier was a great one around like the skill sets in payroll. And like I, I think they're the skill sets for me that have actually helped me more than any of the any of the mathematical stuff or scientific stuff or accounting or management, any of that stuff. I think I think it's actually the Ability to to get on with people uh, wherever they come from whatever their background is and figure out how to fit people together yeah. and I think they're the skills that are actually going to become even more important into the future yeah and to be honest on the recruitment side um when I when I was a recruitment person it, it was more about what was the culture like in the business and then yeah. finding the person that would fit that culture and just saying look they don't have this skill set but the culture fits and I think in a lot of ways that was so much more important because you could teach the skill set but you can't necessarily you can't teach somebody to be a certain way can you they're going to no, either no. feel they're not you, you can help people with dimensions of things a little bit but you're, you're 100% right it's, it's the same I, I, I look often at teams as the, you, if you're playing sport and sport is a, a massively overused analogy in business, in, in my opinion, but it, it does have its place. And if you're looking for building a team that are going to play a certain thing, then you're looking for people who are willing to do what it takes to win. And you're looking for people who will stand by the person next to them and do the right things. You can teach anyone how to how to pass a ball, how to throw a ball, how to kick, those things can be taught. And of course, some people will be better than others at certain skills. Mm. But ultimately, you can teach people to do things. And that's all part of a career path anyway. People want generally to learn. And that's that's an, that's actually a, a powerful thing as well. But if, if they don't want to be there or culturally they don't get on with the people around them, then the friction that generates will actually disable everything else. Yeah, and I'm sure we've both seen what happens isn't it you know when you've got potentially one person that doesn't mix and that can be very destroyed you know soul destroying for the department and um and also the company so how do you think that we can improve the profile of payroll 
Um, I, I definitely think driving towards um, a more data-led environment in payroll um, is a key part of it. I, I think the really important link for me for payroll as well, though it is often underused, is around the employee experience. Um, like I think back to like management theories, the one I'd always go to from fifties and sixties, and that the hierarchy of needs, and and like the bottom rung of that is is it's safety, security, like pay is that if if your if your pay isn't right. You can't provide, um, so you're actually as a payroll as a payroll professional and as a payroll function, you're you're on the absolute foundational pillar of what motivates people. And and I, I still think those management theories are, are very very strong today. That if that's not right, you, you're really fighting an uphill battle about anything else. You're, mm-hmm. You've got to make sure that's right. So I think connecting payroll to that employee experience piece, um, that it is very centric to that. I think is really, really important. And I think that can help elevate the status of payroll, the, the attractiveness of payroll as a, as a career. Um, and it is it is getting, payroll is getting to the point where it can be elevated to top table. It is, it is one of the most powerful data-led areas of the business that can provide insight into what's working or not working, what mm-hmm. areas of the globe should we invest in, what certain roles are financially viable for us or contributing to the bottom line of the business, those types of things. Payroll's at the center of all of that. Yeah, we on our um, member group, we have a WhatsApp group and we had a, a guy, um, I can't remember what the question was, but um, this guy um, put on uh, the WhatsApp group what he was asked to do. And I've, I've never heard it with any other company. So he was asked to run a project to go into a company and build all of the departments around payroll. So pay- payroll was a central department, and he had to configure the HR finance and all the other departments around payroll. And wow. I was like, oh, my God, I've never heard that before. I, think, I feel like we need to get him on to a call. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. This could be the future of payroll. And like when you think about it, like it, it's, that, it's that awful thing in payroll that you're always at the last protocol. You're always the last person that is asked their advice on something or input into something. You're always expected to deal with whatever lands on your desk um, with whatever little time, if any, you have left to do it. And if you don't do it, it's your fault that the outcome was bad for the employee who then mm. leaves the organization. So it, it's that thankless role. So like I, I like the idea and the concept you're describing. You know, if, if you are actually at the nexus of everything coming in, then maybe there should be a bigger stake for payroll and deciding how stuff comes in. Yeah, because I was—I think there was loads of people going, "Yeah, that's great." <laughs> Just yeah. like cause I've li- I have never heard that in like, twenty-five years. So hopefully, we'll we'll hear more stories um, along those lines. So you've obviously got a busy job. Um, how do you relax? Like, what's your go-to re- relaxation? I, I'm told I don't <laughs> relax, but um, I, 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 love, um, I love being active. So like I, I, I get up early in the morning, I, I go to the gym, I, I do the same in the evening. So that's my kind of... Twice? Uh, yeah, twice a day. So that's wow. my... Yeah, so I'd go, like I get up, I'm usually up about half five. Um, I can be back in the house, have the kids' lunches made for school and have an hour of work done before most people are up. So I find that for me actually gets me ahead and I feel a lot more in control of what needs to get done. Mm. And then I I put an absolute deadline on the end of the day and I I have a, that's kind of why I would go again at the end of the day. It's, It's an absolute barrier. So it's not just a a two minute commute home or as everyone has now that even the commute home, that mental barrier isn't there anymore. So it forces a break between work and rest of life. So that kind of, for me, I find that relaxing. 
um I, I kind of pick up other stuff as well it's all it's all kind of around trying to keep physically and mentally well um so I, I find like the, the two things are very linked for me and it's not true for everybody but I find if I if I stay physically fit I'm definitely more mentally resilient it means I'm way more focused at work and just in general life so even picking I'm pick, picking up tennis at the moment um a good friend of mine, Paul, helped me get a tennis racket. I still had the same tennis racket I had at school and used very badly. And he said, look, it's 20-something, it's nearly 30 years old. You probably need to think about changing it. So yeah. he, he would have played at a very high level. So we we shared screen. We went onto a tennis um, tennis website. And he said, right, you need this, you need that. You've I've seen your hands. There. You need to get a few grips to wrap around the grips. So <laughs> that kind of stuff. And uh-huh. I'm, actually, I'm loving it. I'm loving And it's back to the same thing. I'm learning all the time. Yeah. And I'm loving playing against people that are way better than me. Um, so that's that's actually a fun part of it. So things like that, I find definitely help me relax. Like the mm-hmm. kind of anything that takes your mind off stuff and you have to focus on and something in a different area, I think is really important. Yeah, I agree with you because um, during the pandemic, I got a Peloton, you know, those people did. And then I think what I found was that I was so insular in the house, <laughs> but I was just like, I need to, I need to join a gym just to, get out and see other people and, and I know you're not talking to people necessarily in the gym are you but it's just you, you actually out. are you should, you should come to our, our place at six in the morning there's more chat there than anywhere else <laughs> <laughs> oh no I'm, I'm just like yep get on to it but um but I do I do agree with you you need that end point don't you for your own mental health you need to have yeah. that switch off because I think at, at one point I just wasn't switching off at all and that's not healthy no, and, and, and it goes, I, I find it goes through phases as well. Like the last, for me, the last month has been really intense with loads of travel. So I was, I was back and forth to the US three times. I've been traveling into Europe and it's kind of that balance effect. Nobody's gone anywhere and suddenly you can. So you've got to catch up with the stuff you couldn't do. Mm. And that's really hard to keep a routine. So you've, you've got to, I find I've got to have the flip side and say, right now I'm, I'm getting my head down. I'm getting things back in order. Otherwise it'll be a spiral for me because one thing will feed the other and literally feed the other and it becomes an issue um so it's just keeping that healthy and and i find it it becomes more and more important with the kids as they're getting a little bit older like being present is so important for them and you're making sure that when they need you it's not no do you know what come come back in five minutes or i'm too busy now and and that can't always be the way but you know it doesn't help them to just be on for you to be on demand all the time as well but like to be present and to be aware and to be able to help them with stuff it just becomes so important so if you can do the right things to make that work and then for me that's that's definitely health and making sure I keep on top of that then it, it helps me it helps them yeah that sounds great and obviously helps you work as well doesn't it like they get the benefit oh, from it yeah absolutely yeah like it's I can't remember where I read it recently I, I, I really liked it I think it summed it up well it was I think it's the four p's and it was your role as a person in a household, whether whether male or female, I think it was it was it was um, protector, provider, partner, parent, and probably in relatively bad order. Yeah. So, like I think for me that summed it up really well. And I think if I I, I then think I reflect on that a lot actually, it's the things if you can anchor those down, then it actually helps you make the right choices for the right reasons. Well, I think that's great. I've never heard of that. I think that's really and it's true, isn't it? If you really think about it, that is 
the role that you have um, in in life, isn't it? Um, so we're coming to the end of our session. So you know, it's been really great, and I've learned so much about you. I've you know known you for a few years, and I feel like I know you so much better. Um, what would you say to people that are in the payroll industry now? Like, is there any sort of thing that you've learned? during your journey that you could share to people that maybe help them in their career? Yeah, I think it's a funny one in payroll right now. There is so much changing and, and not just payroll. Obviously there's been massive change in the world. I, th- I think what's happened over the last two years, and, it, and we're still doing, we were even saying this before we began, uh, began recording about there used to be things that happened before COVID and we've kind of forgotten, like people used to get colds and uh, used to be sick before yeah. COVID. So it's not, this isn't a COVID thing. I think all the COVID has done is accelerated things. Um, I would I would argue probably five years sooner than they would have been in terms of the ways of working and the types of compliance issues people are dealing with and all those types of things. So I think dealing with change is the hardest thing in any organization. And I think finding ways to become good at that um, it's against human nature. It's actually a survival mechanism deep in the brain to actually deny change and to try and keep hold of the things that are there. I was given a book by my father-in-law when I first met him called um, Who Moved My Cheese? It's a great book. It's a really short book, but it's 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 basically about that. I think whether he's given me a, a subliminal message or not, I don't know. <laughs> Um, you, you've got to learn to adapt to stuff. And it's actually the thing I find fascinating with, with payroll professionals, myself included, it's actually in our job description to deny change. Your job is to make sure things are right and you don't let anything impact that. And the easiest way of doing that is to not change anything. If I keep doing the same things, I'll keep getting the same outcomes for the employees. So that's okay for a while, but ultimately that puts you on a cliff edge where the tech you're using isn't going to last or you're not going to be able to get the compliance patches for the end of year, those types of things. So actually forcing yourself as a payroll professional to be accommodating of change and to actually embrace it wherever possible is probably the best advice I've had. Um, And it's, it's hard to do. It's actually a daily battle to try and make that happen. And change change is scary isn't it yeah um i think sometimes when you've got change i think the way that i try and cope with it is just think of what's the worst case scenario and and try and break it down that way and actually the worst case scenario isn't actually that bad um so um but you're right it is it is really hard but again it is really important to to do to learn to do yeah, exactly. And actually what you're describing, Mel, you're exactly right. And there's actually a science behind that. It's, it's, oh. risk, it's risk management, <laughs> right? So like, so what, what, what are we looking to do? What's the risk of doing it? What's the risk of not doing it? And what are the mitigating factors if the worst case happens? So mm-hmm. once you know what that is, once you know what the worst case is, once you know what you're going to do about it when the worst case does happen, which it will, does happen, then, you know, what else can go wrong? You've got to be able to manage it. The alternative is do nothing. And so that wouldn't last very long well thank you so much um it's been so great to speak to you and if people want to contact you are you happy for them to contact you uh, via linkedin yeah absolutely always always happy to talk to people so uh yeah it's one of the it's one of the really fun parts of the role you get you do get to deal with people all over the world in all different aspects of patreon payroll so i, I, I love that part of the job it's really Bye. fun but thanks so much for your time it's been lovely to talk to you too Oh, not a problem. And I think we might have to run our webinar again on um, earned wage access. I think I feel like that might have to have a rerun and um, see see what people say now, even though it's you know a couple of years forward. So thanks again, and um, we'll catch up soon. No worries. Take care of yourself, Mel. Bye.
The Humans of Payroll podcast is recorded in partnership with Amidis. Amidis is the leader in consolidated global payroll solutions, processing payroll in over 150 countries. The Amidis platform provides a unified view of global payroll operations, real-time data analytics, and advanced reporting capability while ensuring legislative compliance and data security. Amidis's deep integration capabilities with HCM and finance providers dramatically simplifies multi-country payroll obligations.